can't believe I'm having to say this, but if you have your Bibles, get it out to Deuteronomy chapter 22. That's going to be my text for today. Mitch, I can't believe you did that. No, no, not really. <laughs> I'll just adjust on the fly and I'll go to something else. But seriously, Matthew chapter 26 will be my passage for today. Matthew 26. We know the most about the life of Jesus the last week that he lived. From what we call and we celebrate Palm Sunday, which we would celebrate the Sunday before Resurrection Sunday, the last time that Jesus went into the city of Jerusalem, and we know the most about Jesus' life. We have the most details from that week. You could say, and you'd be right, that's the most important week in the history of the world. Because God always had a plan, and the plan was always about Jesus. That God would send his son because I sinned. Because I broke my relationship with God. And even if I was the only one who sinned, even if you among all people were the only one that ever sinned, God would have still sent Jesus because he loves you that much. So as we read through the Gospels, this word that means the good news, that comprise the first four books of the Old Testament, New Testament, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. We learn about the life of Jesus and we read some scripture and we learn about his life. But in this last week, sometimes we refer to it as the Passion Week, where Jesus was just so focused on what was going to happen to him. We have all these details about what happened in this last week, and it's important for us to know. And really, if you think about it, it makes a little bit more sense. For Jesus and for the apostles and those that lived then, their day didn't end at midnight. They didn't check their clocks. Oh, it's midnight. It's the next day. The day ended at sunset. When the sun went down, it was the new day. So when we have all these details of Jesus' life and what happened on Thursday and into Friday and into Saturday and into to Sunday that we call Easter or, or Resurrection Sunday where we celebrate that they went to the tomb and the stone was rolled away and Jesus' body wasn't there. As we look at these events of Jesus' life from Matthew 26, What we see is that in Jesus' last full day, in starting the day that he would die, which now you and I can stand here and call that Good Friday because we're on this side of the empty tomb. Jesus ended the day and it bled into the new day with prayer. He did what he'd done so often throughout his life as we have that chronicled in Scripture. But Jesus took time. He made time because it was a priority for him to talk to his Father. Now, sometimes we Christians have funny words for things, and people look at us kind of strange. And if you're on the outside looking into the church to hear us talk, you're like, y'all are weird. And our response to that appropriately is, yes, we are. <laughs> but what we want to do is we want to have the language, the vernacular to explain to people what we're talking about. When we talk about prayer, it is us talking to our Father who created us, who loves us, who cares for us, and who wants to hear from us. God wants to hear from you. God wants to talk to you. He wants you to talk to Him, and He wants for you to listen when He has things to say to you as well. What we have here in Jesus, Matthew 26, verse 36. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and He said to His disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. The Gospels in some other places let us know that this wasn't an uncommon occurrence for Jesus to take his disciples right there by the Mount of Olives to the Garden of Gethsemane so that he could pray. 
He was modeling for his disciples what he wanted for them to do. But if we stop there for just a minute, and if I run over some of the events about things that happened, what happened on Thursday of this last week of Jesus' life is that Jesus instructed his disciples to prepare for the Passover. They're traveling around. The Bible tells us Jesus didn't have a place to call home. He just wandered around and God took care of him. He told his disciples that they were going to celebrate a Passover meal together. And also, that's why Easter is never the same date for us anyway, because it doesn't correspond to our calendar. It corresponds to the, the Jewish calendar, and that's why we have this broad range of when Easter can fall. It's confusing to us, not so much for Jesus or his disciples. But he instructed his disciples, he said, we're going to have a Passover dinner together. Go, and you'll find a room and tell them that the master needs it. And that's what happened. And that evening... As that Thursday was drawing to a close, Jesus had a Passover meal prepared in an upper room with his disciples, and he instituted what you and I partook of today. We call it communion or the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist, depending on your church background. You may have heard it called something different, but what we do is we tangibly remind one another about the broken body and the spill of blood of Jesus. Not just on Easter, but every day, because it's easy to kind of forget the fundamental things that Jesus did, or maybe even take it for granted. So that Thursday night, Jesus and his disciples had this what would be their last meal together before he was killed. And Jesus starts communion. During dinner, Jesus washes his disciples' feet, which was the job of a slave. And he washed all of his disciples' feet. He's not like me. He didn't, he didn't exclude anyone. Even the one who would betray him, Judas, Jesus washed his feet, and not long after that, Judas <laughs> excuses himself, and he leaves. Jesus and the disciples sing a hymn, and they depart for the Mount of Olives. He predicts that Peter will deny him three times before the sun comes up. He gives some final commands about supplies and provisions, and then they go with the disciples to Gethsemane, where Jesus struggles in prayer while his disciples struggle just to stay awake. And that's what happens in verse 36 of chapter 26 of Matthew that I read. Jesus took them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to the disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And what happens as that new day kicks in and Friday comes, Judas betrays Jesus and he is arrested. Jesus has an informal hearing before Annas, who was a high priest, but they rotated on and off, so he wasn't serving then, but they took him to Annas as soon as they could, and Annas then sent him over to the full council as soon as the sun was up and they could have their council. And the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, sent him over to Pontius Pilate. Judas returns the silver. He's sorry for what he has done, and he hangs himself because of his betrayal of his master. And then Pontius Pilate questions Jesus, and he sends him over to Herod Antipas. And Pontius, or Pilate and Herod are kind of confusing because there's a number of different Herods, and there's a number of different Pilates that happen in scriptures. It, it will, maybe you can understand it this way. It's kind of like Miss, Miss Kay's dog from Duck Dynasty, Bill Robertson's wife. They have this little terrier, and she's had like five or six of the things, and when it dies, they just rename the new one the same thing. Like, so it's confusing. Which dog number are we on? I mean, that's not exactly what happened with, with Pilate, but it was a prestigious name to have. For Herod, it was a prestigious thing to have. So that's why it's Pontius Pilate and Herod Antipas. And as we see these real historical figures that play a role in Jesus' life. So Pilate questions Jesus and sends him off to Herod. Herod questions Jesus and sends him back to Pilate. Pilate condemns Jesus to die because the Sanhedrin wanted to do that, but they didn't have the authority to kill Jesus, so they sent him over to the Romans. 
Jesus is mocked and he's marched to Golgotha, a place that is called the place of the skull, where he is killed before two thieves at nine o'clock in the morning on Friday. Darkness falls over the land from noon until three, and there's a great earthquake, and Jesus breathes his last at three o'clock in the afternoon, six hours on the cross, which for someone dying on a cross was a really, really short time. Easy for me to say, standing here. Many people who were crucified by the Romans, they were professional executioners, were on the cross way longer than that. Either way, an an excruciating death. After Jesus dies, Joseph of Arimathea asks for his body so it can be buried properly, and he puts it in a new tomb that had never been used. And while casting this full picture of the story, I want us to focus on the very first thing that Jesus did. Yeah, if we go back to that first thing on Friday where Jesus was praying Thursday night into what would be Friday, and he's praying with his disciples, he's struggling in prayer, and he's saying, God, I will do whatever you need me to do, but is there another way? But he knew that there wasn't. But he was being honest with his Father. He said, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus prayed. And he spent time talking to his father. He spent time communing so that he would know the father better, so that he could continue to trust what Jesus had or what God had to say for him. I want to read another account. So after the disciples struggle to stay awake, and in fact they can't stay awake while Jesus is praying in in Gethsemane, Jesus says in verse 48 of Matthew 26, Rise, let us be going. My betrayer is at hand. Then it picks up into verse 47. And it says, while he, Jesus, was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him was a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, the one I kiss is the man, sees him. And he came up to Jesus at once. He said, greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him, and Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who was there with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to him, put your sword back in its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will not at once send more than 12 legions of angels? How then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out against the robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all of this had taken place so that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all of the disciples left him and fled. They just took off. They didn't know what to do. Jesus was arrested. He told them this was kind of going to happen, but they didn't understand all the way. No goodbyes were recorded, no words of, hey, I'll see you later, no opportunities taken. Now, you and I, we tell one another goodbye, and then sometimes maybe, in fact, probably too many of us has had this happen. Well, you wish you could have said goodbye one more time, and you couldn't. Because you don't know how much longer that we have. We take it for granted. We say goodbye. We say adios, adieu, aloha, arrivederci. We say hasta luego. Anybody know how to say goodbye in German? There it is. It's on my thing, but I can't say it. I tried, and I tried, and I tried, and it just wasn't going to come out of my mouth. But we say goodbye to people. 
We say bon voyage, we say sayonara, we say shalom, goodbye, see you later, until next time, catch you on the flip-flop. All right, nobody says that. But we say goodbye, we take time to, to, to hug our loved ones, to tell them goodbye, to let them know that we care for them, that we want to see them again. Yet his disciples, scared, didn't understand. I bet they wish they could go back to that time and tell Jesus goodbye. You need not say goodbye. The people will shout my name. Pilate will tell them there's nothing I've done to deserve this, but they will refuse. Pilate will stand me beside Barabbas, a murderer, and they will choose him over me. Pilate will appeal to the priest, insist on simply whipping me to appease their fury but they will shout it louder, crucify, crucify. But still, you need not say goodbye. My hands will be tied to a post. The sound of the whip will ring in your ears and in your chest. The soldiers will peel the skin off my back. A ring of thorny branches will be pressed into my scalp until the blood runs into my eyes. You need not say goodbye. I will carry that cross. I will go to the place of the skull, and there they will drive the iron stakes between the bones in my wrist. With a hammer, they will nail my feet into the tree. I will be raised up as the world waits for me to die. Nevertheless, you need not say goodbye. Between two thieves I will hang. You may hear me speaking to my father, your father. You may hear me ask him, why? But child, you need not say goodbye. What you won't see, what you won't hear, what you won't know until all of this is done is that in that moment, I was paying the penalty of your wrongdoing. Every wrongdoing, every mistake, every act of envy, every word of hatred, every moment of violence and greed and spite, every selfish desire, every lustful thought, every moment of weakness and weariness, all the failures of human history will be in my hands and on my head. On that cross, I will suffer the wrath that was destined for you. Every guilty verdict fallen on me. Your punishment will be paid for in my blood, and it will be enough. I will die on your cross. I will let out a final sigh. Know that I have loved you, and you need not say goodbye. But if you must, if you absolutely must say the word goodbye, then say it like this. Goodbye fear. Goodbye sorrow. 
Goodbye rejection. Goodbye shame. Say it like this. Goodbye guilt. Goodbye condemnation. Goodbye all the regrets of the past. Look up at the cross and speak the words. Goodbye addiction. Goodbye chains. Goodbye hopelessness. Right here in this place, say it aloud. Goodbye captivity. Hello freedom. Goodbye loneliness. Hello belonging. Goodbye defeat. Hello victory. This is the end of the curse. This is the demise of the serpent. This is all debts paid. This is, it is finished. Goodbye all the powers of hell. Goodbye darkness. Goodbye dread. Goodbye every sin. Go ahead and say it. Goodbye death. Speak and be free, but don't say goodbye to me. Yes, you'll see them put the spear in my side, but remember, it's only Friday, so you need not say goodbye. With the exception of Judas, the betrayer of Jesus, all of his disciples had another opportunity to see him, to spend time with him. They didn't have to live the rest of their life looking back thinking, well, I didn't say goodbye to Jesus because they got to see him again because he came back from the dead. Apart from Jesus, no one comes back from the dead in this lifetime. We're forgiven before we ever sin. God covered my shortcomings before I was ever born. Bob Goff's a lawyer by trade. He's written a couple really good books on, on faith and Christianity. He was asked some parenting advice while he was speaking at a conference a few years ago. He responded with a story, a very special gift that he gave his daughter before she was ever born. Goff explained how he'd written a letter to his daughter forgiving her for crashing the family car. And he buried the letter in their yard. And then 17 years later, when his daughter crashed the family car, he gave her the coordinates in the yard and told her to go dig it up. And she did that. And she found the buried note. And she discovered that she was forgiven before she was ever born. Friends, Christ did that with us. He sacrificed his life for you 2,000 years ago before you were ever born to secure the message of forgiveness. And we read about that in God's word and we call that the Bible. And we have it right before us. Or I could tell you this story of Kara, age three years old. She could hardly wait for Easter. Kind of like my seven-year-old didn't sleep well last night, so she's kind of grumpy this morning because she was <laughs> excited for Easter. But this three-year-old Kara was just so excited for Easter, she could hardly wait. And she had all this enthusiasm. So her dad wondered, does she really understand what it's about? So he asked her, and she said, yeah, Dad, I know what it's about. She put her hands up in the air and she said, Surprise! <laughs> Really, what better way to describe Easter? 
We put up our hands and Jesus yelled surprise and that's what he did for this downcast band of followers. Jesus did the same thing. You can read the resurrection's accounts in a couple different places in Luke 24 and John 20, but sometimes when we read our imaginations, they don't really, it doesn't sink in with us. So this one's short, but I've got one more video for you to watch. This powerful depiction of of Mary Magdalene, who Jesus had restored, who Jesus had forgiven, seeing the empty tomb and then running to Peter and John, and, and you'll see what they did. He's risen. He's alive. Richard Dawkins, a well-known atheist who wrote The God Delusion, says the onus of proof is on me and you. He says it's on us as Christians to prove that Jesus really existed, to prove that the claims of our faith are true. But, But that's unreasonable because the one denying the evidence carries the weight of disproving what's known to be true. The Holocaust, for example, is something most people believe in. One, because it happened And then all the historical evidence that supports it, that leads up to it, that talks about it, yet some people still deny that the Holocaust ever occurred. But is the burden of proof on us who believe and know historically that the Holocaust happened? No, the burden of proof is on those who stand opposed to all of the historical evidence, all of the writings, all of the pictures, all of the atrocities that had happened. They're the ones that have their crazy idea and have to prove why they might say something didn't occur or exist. That burden of proof still remains on those who go against documented history, and the same is true with Christ, the resurrection, and Christianity. People as Dawkins who believe that our faith, that we have to prove it to them, in fact, the onus of proof is on them because they're the ones that stand on the opposite side of overwhelming evidence that Jesus is risen, that it really happened with all these facts making their case. But you and I, when it comes to 
believing in resurrection, we're hardwired to believe that that's not very likely. In fact, we're hardwired to believe that it's just not true. People don't come back from the dead. We want to resist the idea of somebody returning to life, and Lyle Bahari is living proof of that. In 1975, he applied for a bank loan in the country of India where he lived, but he was denied that loan because the government had listed him legally dead. Shouldn't be that hard to prove that you're alive, should it? I'm right here. We're having a conversation. Give me a piece of food. I'll eat it. It won't fall to the ground. We'll be okay. I am alive. But he spent the next 19 years of his life fighting the Indian government bureaucracy to prove that he wasn't dead. Can you imagine? I'm alive. I'm right here. And in fact, in some of the records he found by his name, Lal Bihari, 1955 to 1977, comma, 1994- are you kidding me? He just didn't exist for those years. After his great challenge to prove that he was not dead, he discovered that he wasn't alone. So he created the Association of Dead People to help others who are dealing with the same issue. And friends, Christianity doesn't deny that it's difficult to believe that a dead man came back to life, but that's just the point. Because there is no other way. It's a miraculous event that only could have been pulled off by God. The appropriately named, I don't think it's a stage name anyway, Billy Sunday was a famed evangelist from centuries ago, and he would write the mayor of every city in the towns that he was going to go to and share the gospel with people. He would write a letter to the mayor, and he would say, if you know people that are in a special need of prayer, send me back their names. The mayor of Columbus, Ohio, had a good understanding of sin and what people needed. What he sent back to Billy was the phone book. <laughs> yeah. Now, my cell phone number is not in the phone book, but if there was a list of all the people who needed to hear the gospel, it's all of us. It includes every one of us. We all need special prayer. We all need to know that Jesus came for us. We're all sinners in need of prayer and grace. Author Anne Lamont stated it this way. She said, I do not understand the mystery of grace, only that it meets us where we are, but it doesn't leave us where, we found, where it found us. God's grace is not designed to appease our sin, but to transform us into new creatures, going from death to life. Which is why God tells us this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Mark Twain once quipped that some people are like an envelope without any address on it. Where are you going? Where are you going? Where is your life taking you? Apart from Jesus, your life takes you to an eternity of anguish and pain, separated from your Father. With Jesus, it's an eternity of a new heaven and a new earth restored to this planet. You think you like this planet now? Just wait until God restores the new heaven and new earth and it comes down and we spend forever with our risen King. We should be excited about our faith. And in Easter, there's all this other fun stuff that we get to do. But let us not forget, we celebrate the resurrection every Sunday because without it, we're just wasting our time. Jesus rose because that was the only way. We need to make sure we live our lives reflective of that. Jesus is the only way. That's why he said, I am the way and the truth and the life, not a way or a truth, or a life, but the only way. 
That's why when it comes to what you personally believe about Jesus is so important. Because honestly, what you believe doesn't change anything about Jesus or God. He is true. Nothing you believe about God changes him. But what you believe about God changes you. And you could say that Christianity is exclusive. But on the flip side of that, you could say that it's inclusive because, yeah, Jesus is the only way, but Jesus isn't trying to exclude people. God sent Jesus to die on the cross. Why? So the sinner can be saved. And that everybody has an opportunity to respond to the gospel. Maybe you haven't responded yet. Maybe you want to do that this morning. Maybe you need to take this message and send that on to somebody else so that they can understand that Jesus died for them. And because of that, we have to trust him and do what he said. Let's pray. God, we are grateful for the resurrection and how we can celebrate it and how we can study it and how we can read about it and how we can understand, and God, how you instill in us that we can believe. And God, I'm grateful for all the different ways we have to to show people the gospel. God, may they see Jesus resurrected. May they see the Christian life lived out through us. And not just in a passive way where they kind of know, yeah, we're busy on Sunday mornings most weeks, but in a way that we are pursuing people who are lost with the message of Jesus. God, we are grateful for you. Thank you for the celebration that we have today on this Resurrection Sunday. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.